This is a two-part conversation with Edward Ongweso Jr. of Vice Magazine on Proposition 22 and the gig economy. In part one, we discuss Proposition 22, the impact it will have on both the U.S. and global labor markets, and then do a deep dive into the strange allyship between former Obama officials, many of whom come from diverse backgrounds of race, class, and gender, and why they were willing to find positions, jobs, lobbying opportunities, and other spaces for allyship and solidarity with the far-right capitalists of Silicon Valley, who so explicitly pushed Prop 22 as a way to weaken and destroy labor protections in the United States. This gets to the heart of the issue of neoliberal multiculturalism that defines Silicon Valley, and Edward and I discuss explicitly how Proposition 22 is an example of how representation does not equal progress if millions of black, brown, poor, and queer Americans who have to work in the gig economy are now denied labor protections, working wage, and health care that they so sorely need to survive. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We have fascinating conversations on a variety of subjects. We've also spoken to Wendy Liu and Edward for an interview on her book, Abolish Silicon Valley. And you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com. We have a host of print interviews on fascinating topics, including a recent print interview with the radical labor collective Chuang out of China. All right, here's part one of my conversation with Edward Ongweso Jr. of Vice Magazine on Proposition 22, what it will mean for the future of labor, and why so many Obama officials were willing to come together with the far right to pass this draconian and, quite frankly, evil law in the sake of profit and how diversity perhaps acted as a Trojan horse to allow them to do so. Thank you. My name is uh, Edward Anguasso Jr. I'm a staff writer at a Motherboard, uh, which is Vice's technology section. I focus mainly on labor, uh, the gig economy, uh, digital rights, and um, also co-host of uh, This Machine Kills, which is a podcast about political economy of tech um, and technology in cities, technology and uh, in property law, technology in domestic politics. I don't know. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. I'm working on some things about the Bay Area, the history of the Bay Area, and um, some of the roots, some of the pre-capitalist roots of inequality there that really supercharged um, Silicon Valley's um, uh, exploitation of uh, the people there. Um, but other than that, that's pretty much it. Prop 22, which is the focal point of our conversation today, I think is, is emblematic of sort of the end of the road uh, between the peace between capital and labor, as well as between the state able to protect its citizens from the excesses 
of capital. All these truces seem to be falling away. So I framed this in a monumental way, and if you don't see it the same way, feel free to um, add nuance or to maybe um, tone down my my uh, introduction there. But could you talk about the Proposition 22 referendum, its immediate consequences, and then in terms of these more uh, philosophical questions about the U.S. capital and labor, do you see it in these somewhat dystopian terms as I do? You know, the Prop 22 fight hits a lot of really uh, pertinent threads, you know, on the one hand, you know, United States labor has been uh, really under constant assault for the duration of, you know, its history. And even now, even though we've seen a sort of resurgence in activism, right, it is still, you know, relatively speaking, you know, a shell or a husk of what it was years, decades ago, or even at the peak of its, you know, history, um, or the peak of its power, you know, decades and decades, you know, before when it was able to get massive concessions from labor um, to organize, you know, compacts and a share of, you know, profits or returns for workers. And, you know, and, and Prop 22 comes at a time where now this sort of last stage attack uh, I guess is starting to eviscerate even the dregs of that agreement, right? Where Prop 22 is saying, Prop 22 is an attempt by gig companies to get an exemption from a law that would have reclassified their workers as uh, employees instead of independent contractors. Uh, the reason why it would have reclassified their workers is because in California, they have an ABC test uh, that was nationalized as state law by another bill called Assembly Bill 5. And then ABC tests, you know, they exist in about 30 or so states in this country. And it basically is a three-pronged test that determines whether or not you are a worker that has sufficient enough control, independent control over your labor to call yourself a contractor. And if you fail to any part of the test, then you do not have sufficient control and you are an employee of the firm. Um, and, you know, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, Postmates are enterprises where the whole business model, um, you know, relies on tightly controlling workers, controlling their labor, controlling who they go to, controlling the terms in which they're allowed to reject jobs or else they risk a deactivation, uh, controlling the wages that they can set and the fees that they're able to, you know, negotiate or deal with, pretty much dealing with none of the... Um, cost itself, right? All the costs are put onto drivers. Um, they're expected to provide the capital in the form of a car to cover the maintenance costs, to cover uh, health insurance, to cover, um, you know, any, if they're not able to work someday or because they're sick or an injury, they're supposed to, you know, basically, you know, fuck off and do it themselves. So this is a business model that works extremely well for these companies, gig companies, because they were they rely on a mass reserve army of labor. They were they rely on a mass amount of workers who are constantly on the platform, uh, not being utilized, but there to keep wait times low, labor costs low, um, ha customers happy, and fight with each other over you know the scraps. If they were forced to pay drivers who are on the platform, they would be forced to radically downsize the scale of their platform. They'd be forced to radically increase the costs that they have. Uh, they'd be forced to operate in substantially less places. So instead of doing all of that, 
you know, instead of retooling their entire business model uh, so that it is more in line with the reality of what they, you know, would be able to do sustainably, uh, they're waging what amounts to a war on employment law by launching this proposition in California. And then after its success, where they were able to get this exemption and keep their workers classified as contractors, they're now proposing to take it nationwide um, as a way to reclassify all sorts of uh, employees who are you know, employed by a firm, but the firm may want to carve out benefits, aka labor costs, to reduce uh, the amount of control they have in the workplace, that workers have in the workplace over their own labor, increase the amount of control that the firm has over them, reduce the amount of you know, costs that a firm has to pay for the workers. I think that this is a massive you know, crossroads moment because uh, it is proven that a company can just spend hundreds of companies can spend hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, kill, to write laws themselves or to kill you know, laws that are practiced pretty much everywhere else. And this will lead to an assault on unions. This will, you know, uh, which are already, again, under, you know, sustained assault in the country. This will lead to, I think, more emboldened attacks, you know, by capital. Uh, this will lead to more tactics like, you know, in California, they threatened a capital strike. If they didn't get their way, they threatened to just leave the state. I think, you know, these sort of tactics are going to be more and more in play. And that is something that is dangerous because, Typically, companies have not been good at mobilizing their base the way these firms are, or have not experimented with using their app for uh, mobilization or notification, using their app to, uh, for misinformation and for disseminating you know, campaign propaganda, using their app to do lobbying. But these companies prove that it works. And this, I think, will you know, really you know, massively expand the prospects and the options available to companies who just want to bypass the law. Um, to make more money, essentially, and to goose up their books. So uh, something that I was thinking about while you were talking is the inability of Americans, which is our country is based on settler colonialism and white supremacy, to sort of see themselves as uh, in the same way a migrant worker might. Um, when you look at contract labor, independent contract labor, um, in comparison to the tolerated and in fact essential illegal migrant labor that's connected to uh, big agriculture, uh, big meat packing, what would the effect be of, of formalizing this dominance um, of these firms on the lived experience of workers in the United States, and do you believe that in this race to the bottom, it can erase some of the white supremacy, settler colonialism, uh, the myth-making of uh, Horatio Alger that I think still is one of the main barriers more than anything, the, the, the image the American worker has of themselves. Do you think it can help build solidarity with these other um, types of labor, both in the U.S. And, and globally, what we would call migrant labor? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think I think left to its own devices, um, this arrangement eviscerates solidarity in a way that is, you know, there are not many other methods that rival it. I mean, 
there's been a good deal of work done on this by Avina Dubal, who's a law professor at UC Hastings, you know, surveys of drivers to figure out why how they conceive themselves and why they may or may not want to be employees. Um, and, you know, part of it is because of fear of how the company will treat them if they're employees. Um, but a good deal of it is also because they end up believing a lot of the stories that the company has fabricated pretty carefully um, with uh, its own impressive propaganda campaign about entrepreneurship, about uh, flexibility of drivers to choose where they drive, how they drive, when they drive, for how much they drive. Uh, these sort of myths have been really integral to, I think, uh, selecting for people who are going to believe that, but are also precarious enough to take the job, and also grinding people down once they're in the job to be solely concerned with that. I think it will be important for work for organizers within workers themselves and organizers outside of workers to make that connection uh, between migrant labor and contract labor uh, that is you know legal or formalized but i think these companies have done a really great job at crushing uh, solidarity really um they've for example convinced drivers uh that there's no similarity between them and non-app-based drivers. I mean, there's really not much difference between an app-based driver and a, and a traditional taxi cab driver. But one of the, I think the success Uber and Lyft have had in that industry and in, in convincing drivers themselves of the difference, even though they have identical labor conditions, is indicative of just how uh, well the propaganda effort has worked. Those differences scale up even further. They view themselves as distinct from delivery drivers for food services, even though, again, the model is more or less identical in sort of the labor conditions. Um, this is a problem if we're interested in showing people how their struggles or other people's struggles and that together they can overcome them and that they have an interest in helping each other. Um, over overcome them, not simply so that, you know, um, there's an immediate material benefit. I mean, that in of itself is pretty important, but also just um, the huge psychic wound that comes about by just doing these sorts of jobs where you're forced to constantly debase yourself, constantly delay a sense of dignity in the name of earning one day uh, your keeper, you're making ends meet, and then constantly being faced with the reality that you're not able to and being told it's because you because you're not hustling hard enough because you're not good enough entrepreneur that you need to discipline your own behavior and your own uh, activity in the world and how you move through it um i think it is i think it's a really big problem because this i feel like it just breeds in of itself an attitude that is you know really uh, dangerous to solidarity dangerous to the workers and their health mental health and their well-being and dangerous to efforts to just get people to see themselves in one another, which is, I think, one of the only ways you're going to be able to combat the huge preponderance, the huge discrepancy, you know, between our resources and their resources, corporations' resources, when it comes to organizing laborers or organizing workers or helping their lives just be better. I don't understand, I suppose, when people say money in elections, money in elections. And, and I... Um other than maybe it reveals fundamental truths about who we are. Why could 
Uber or Lyft make an argument of, hey, we want to create a class of serfs, <laughs> essentially, where when you when you think of the lives of an Uber driver, you know, you, you going to the goddamn bathroom has been one of the, the the biggest contested fights for these gig economy jobs where you're constantly on the clock. Just finding a time to take a piss is something that is uh, is almost a, requires a Herculean effort in their day-to-day -day lives. Why were they able to create an argument or propaganda that says, hey, we want to create serfs? Why does that beat out, um, I think, even without advertising, even without, you know, labor organizing or door knocking, what should be a fairly transparent argument for the side of the worker saying, no, pay us more and let us go to the bathroom. Could you explain a little bit about the utility of money and the efficacy of the propaganda used by these firms. You know, I think the propaganda is really, really, you know, it's easy. There's also right now a debate, I think, in some of the coverage about the role of the propaganda and how much the spending really swayed people. But it's also, you know, as a base to consider the fact that the propaganda was really a lot of the information or the only information that people got. And that that it's not simply that that no one hears of Uber only when Uber is giving an ad, but that the interactions between Uber drivers and uh, their customers, between Lyft drivers and their customers, between uh, delivery drivers and their customers are um, artificial ones. They're mediated by behaviors that the companies instill in the driver to ensure that they have a five-star rating. And those also function to prevent discussion, uh, prevent frank discussion about the conditions. I mean, I've when I was doing a survey of drivers in New York City, um, I was also working at the same time at a for what is basically the company union for um, uh, for Uber um, and observing, helping out with deactivation trials. So drivers get deactivated if their rating falls below an arbitrary threshold, 4.6 in New York City. Um, and a lot of the drivers would talk about how they would get poor ratings if they opened up and started talking about things, about how their you know, problems in their life. And I also was able to talk to customers who, you know, and getting an idea of what their ideal ride is. And it's one where, the driver talks it's not too depressing or it's like a fun convo or it's like you know something largely for their own satisfaction i think that you know this sort of self-discipline encouraged by the rating system to not share your problems in addition to uh, the way that the service is marketed to people is supposed to be a consumption a consumptive thing that for their entertainment and benefits so you you know the driver has to have a charger for you the driver has to have good music for you the driver has to have good stories for you or silence you know like they are your driver um prevents people from just spending like literally the five minutes it would take to just talk to your driver to talk to every driver that you have and figure out what their lives are like um and if you do that you know as i did as you know people who do these surveys do you find that a lot of them are uh, suffering, but it really just takes like a few minutes to ask. And that's not the reason why it's not done is really because of how successful the propaganda has been intentionally in creating those divides and, un and, you know, as incidental things by like discouraging people from even thinking to mention it. I think also another thing that has helped Uber in terms of the propaganda is 
Uh, for the past 10 years, it's been doing a propaganda, a propaganda campaign that is just like straight out of the Koch brothers playbook, you know, like the, um, the taxi deregulation thing, you know, like they just, they tried to do taxi deregulation for, um, uh, for the seventies uh, and eighties and, uh, it worked, um, in the sense that or it worked in that they were able to get people to believe the talking points, even if they were not able to actually get the um, taxi monopolies out of there. Right. Like you said, freedom works is um, one of the, or freedom works is like a place that uh, I think like pretty much pushes that ideology or sums it up in a good, nice little bundle for us. Right. Ride sharing is good. Ride sharing is the free market. Ride sharing is, you know, innovation. Um, taxis are monopolies that that are government backed and weigh down the efficiency of the market. Medallions are an anti-capitalist uh, tool. You know, like these sort of narratives have been already baking in the public consciousness. Uh, Uber and Lyft were able to exploit them, build them up, create this new thing of the gig economy, which then allowed all the other gig companies Postmates, Instacart, DoorDash, what have you, to come in and benefit from like you know the the uh, the blueprint and the foundation that these companies have laid down. So now you have multiple actors backed by VCs in the position to spend hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars over their lifespans, um, just lying to people and just convincing them that the world doesn't work the way that it actually does and buying academic research to convince people that the world doesn't work the way it does and buying people's voices and drivers voices and politicians voices so i you know i understand why the money thing becomes a real thing but as you said the money thing is like a superficial part of it because the real problem is you know corruption is legal in this country. you know this country is like rotten and politically in terms of uh, corruption. There are many ways to get what you want without directly buying someone's attention, voter uh, complicity, right? Um, and companies have exploited that through the dishonest mailers that they sent out pretending to be Bernie Sanders organizations. They do that through the app where they put notifications for drivers to pledge to support Prop 22. Uh, they did that with notifications to riders, sending them to the Prop 22 website. I mean, there are so many ways that Money is not simply the problem. It's the way that they have advantaged, they have advantages because they own all these institutions and structures. And because we don't have laws on the books or regulations in the books that stop them from doing this shit. That's something I was thinking about as you were talking is I'm wondering uh, to, to shine a spotlight on, you know, sort of the, uh, the scientists who, who, are building this dystopia actively, you know, the programmers, the social psychologists who are taking us on this race to the bottom of the return of serfdom uh, on back on the road. What was it? The road to serfdom? Is that Hayek? Yeah, that's our boy Hayek. You have all these people in the business of making this propaganda from ad agencies to social psychologists to the engineers who sort of re uh, build in reward systems uh, to these applications uh, and uh, build in um, to the platforms ways of mediating our social interactions in a way that uh, monetizes them, financializes them, uh, ties them to a rating system in a very inhumane way. You're no longer talking to um, your driver as a human, you're talking to them as a driver. That's, that's all that they exist to you as, and you are the customer 
um, in that relationship. There's no longer any humanity. You're trying to um, take out as much humanity as possible and replace it with the structures of Uber or DoorDash or whatever um, frameworks the company wants. Could you talk a bit about who these propagandists are? Sort of, if we looked at a team, the team behind Prop Twenty Two, who would be the roles we find? We found um, what academics, uh, psychologists, ad agencies. What were the the people involved in this campaign? Um, what would that look like? And then, uh, and when I think of these people who are condemning millions of Americans to lives of suffering. Beyond money, what's the propaganda given to them to keep them rolling out these systems of of tyranny and dominance and pain year after year after year? So could you talk about who makes the propaganda? And then could you talk about who makes the propaganda for the propagandists? The Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Postmates, Instacart, the S1 Prop 22 campaign, right? Uh, that comes from... Yes, on Prop 22, which is a campaign, a coalition of those five companies. Um, so those five companies got together. They have partnered with PR firms uh, that are, you know, San Francisco based ones that operate out of some shell companies. They use consultants like Renee Nahum, who is uh, like, a, I think, you know, think of her as like a Los Angeles um, consultant, basically, who just works with mailers. Um, in a little background in California, political mailers are well known for being, you know, wildly deceptive. Uh, a lot of causes or a lot of groups will use shell companies to present their information in a dishonest way to convince people to vote for something they may otherwise vote against. Um, people dominate this or companies who just will throw hundreds of thousands of dollars behind like, you know, these shell groups. Um, and you know, a lot of these fixers, a lot of these consultants are well connected to the Democratic Party in the state, ironically enough, um, or connected to campaigns that have happened throughout the state in Sacramento and San Francisco and San Diego. Um, you know, the Yes on Prop 22 campaign is also relied on uh, groups that like the Berkeley uh, Research Group. And this is a group that it's basically done to continue a long tradition of uh, getting as close as you can to fabricating academic research to support uh, conclusions. These companies don't release the data uh, that they use or collect um, from uh, daily operation, but what they do is they present a, you know, select excerpts to researchers who they ascertain are going to be willing to come to conclusions that align with their own. Uh, the most famous example of researchers in this instance who have been like the most integral to constructing the rhetoric that Uber uses today are uh, Alan Kruger and Seth Harris. Uh, Alan Kruger uh, uh, was a Princeton economist who died last year. And he was uh, an Uber consultant also. And he wrote some of the major economic analyses of Uber or for the time they were the major economic analyses that basically, you know, one way or another argued that the uh, job paid a little bit better than you might otherwise expect, um, that uh, drivers had a little bit more control over the labor than you might expect, and that the job may appear to have the full-time hours or may appear to have hours equivalent to full-time work, but in reality, it's part-time work. 
um, structured in, you know, a confusing way. And in a paper with Seth Harris, he wrote something called a modern approach basically to 21st century labor law. And this was the proposal, the normalization of a concept um, called the third worker category, where you get neither the classification of a employee or a contractor. Uh, you get hybrid hybrid uh, benefits of both, but none of the protections of the of the employee and all of the exploitative vulnerabilities of the contractor. Um, Seth Harris is or was a former acting Secretary of Labor under Obama. Will likely be the Secretary of Labor under Biden. Um, is a well-known lobbyist that revolves and has defended gambling, um, uh, gambling industry, uh, private student loan uh, companies that you know prey on people at predatory rates. Um, these are some of the people who have been instrumental to creating Uber and Lyfts. Uh, and I'll use them for shorthand for the whole uh, industry, but for the gig economy's uh, exploitative business model and now attempt to make it na nationwide. Um, the propaganda is usually directed uh, to other academics, to social justice groups, community groups that will build the trust that these companies need with uh, customers because both of them have tarnished reputations after scandals nationwide, but particularly Uber. And Uber has become a substitute for a lift in many people's eyes and minds. So they try to use these uh, groups to bypass all of that. A good example is um, in California, the state's NAACP chapter endorsed Proposition 22. It was later revealed that the head of the California NAACP, Alice Huffman, was uh, getting paid by the Yes on Prop 22 campaign. They gave about $85,000 to a consulting firm that she runs. And, you know, she also has a long history of basically taking donations and then ending up uh, taking donations through her consulting firm and then coming out in support of the uh, campaigns or ballot initiatives that did the donations. Um, and, you know, you can see more or less a, a picture start to emerge where I guess uh, on the first order, they're the propagandists um, who are unwitting or sometimes willing academics, um, lobbyists, uh, PR firms masquerading as objective research groups. Uh, you have former Obama officials. Um, Seth Harris is just one. Another one is Uber's current chief le uh, legal officer, who's Kamala Harris's brother-in-law, uh, um, Tony West. Um, he is uh, a particularly litigious and um, aggressive advocate of uh, Uber's business model. Um, you also have David Plouffe, who ran Obama's 2008 campaign and then went on to join um, the company and ran their political propaganda operations for the first few years uh, before he was replaced by a former Google executive. Uh, you have uh, close Obama advisors joining both uh, Uber and Lyft or joining their boards and becoming advisors as well. Um, the propaganda networks, I think, of the political system overlap with the, this companies, and much in the same way that politicians might, they target similar networks because they're trying to bypass um, debate and discussion and, and mobilize people uh, to just act on 
narratives that they've been told in one way or another, stories they've been raised with, um, identities that they may feel that they belong to, but warped in ways by these companies to just uh, further their own interests. The right and how I associate many of these deregulatory projects uh, often is connected to or is intermingled with racism. The Koch brothers were uh, members of the John Birch Society, which is, I think, advocated a return to slavery. A lot of these deregulatory figures um, of the Trump administration are uh, actively participating in the... the um, strengthening of white supremacy, um, not that it ever went away, but validating it in the highest uh, political office in a very public and, I think, dumb way. I think it's probably always been there, but this is the most blatant and stupid it's been in some time. On the other side, and you've noted this, and I think uh, Corey Robin has as well, you have a multicultural mix of executives and lobbyists. Um, Anthony Fox is another name that comes to mind. Um, from the Obama administration, uh, I believe the former Secretary of Transportation. Do you see this as when we talk about what do these people believe? You know, Edward and Matt, you know, not not Harvard, not, you know, um, summer school for me. I don't know, Edward, if you had to do uh, academic retraining when you were younger. But even even to guys like us, we go, this is fucking insane. Um, and there seems to be this very bizarre truce between a, a very racist right wing and what scholars like Jody Malamed have called neoliberal multiculturalism on the other side, a very diverse group of very powerful people from various backgrounds and various genders um, working together on these gig economy and Silicon Valley initiatives. Could you discuss a little bit about what to make of that correlation I've teased out and if that points to maybe a larger philosophy that's animating what seems to be a very dangerous form of capitalism. Yeah, you know, I think this coalition of the willing is um, a pretty uh, dangerous development. And there are a few ways to read it. You know, I think part of it is that Silicon uh, Valley and San Francisco have become the city on the hill for some people, right? Um, and I think there's also a historical trend where after a White House administration, people and staffers tend to flock, to, uh, flock over to the most dominant part of the economy. In Bill Clinton, it was Wall Street. In Manhattan, um, you know, Bush was back to uh, their snake pits in the uh, defense industry. And in uh, the Obama administration, Silicon Valley um, and uh, Hollywood to an extent, I think. There's that there, but there, but the but the multicultural element of neoliberalism is important because that's how it ends up. I think like the superficial multiculturalism ends up like blocking uh, any self-reflection, critical thinking about how the system still is just perpetuating the same exact inequalities that they would ostensibly be have you know take issue with. I mean, uh, it is hard to understand how a secretary of transportation would go on like Anthony Fox did to become the chief lobbyist at Lyft, right? But I think, you know, for for state of mind for a political program that is uh, 
that that views the digital as like a as a way to slick down public goods and services, and not realizing that it's just another form of privatization, and also not realizing uh, the ways in which it uniquely hurts um, you know black and brown workers, the way, the way it uniquely hurts migrants, the way it uniquely hurts uh, groups who are on the other side of this multiculturalism. Um, I think that. I don't know. I, I, I think, I think that th- this all points to, you know, the, there's like an ignorance there where there's a multicultural, there's a multiculturalism of the oppressors and then a multiculturalism of the oppressed um, in, in direct opposition. And I think maybe part of it is like, they just all and to some degree have a class interest that aligns with one another. I mean, one of the reasons uh, I, th- I think this is kind of related. One of the reasons why Amazon wanted to do HQ2 in the North Virginia area was because, you know, as successful as lobbying operations are, the most successful form of lobbying you can have if you're a company is to just ingratiate your workforce with the government. You know, if uh, if your kid, if your lobbyists go to the same schools as uh, the same schools as these uh, politicians kids do uh, they go to the same country clubs go to the same places literally share the same spaces uh, then it is much easier to you know slither in and uh, convince them that yours and theirs are the same interests and to an extent they are right the decisions the consequence of the wrath of amazon does not fall on uh, a politician or their kids, it falls on, you know, their constituents and uh, to the degree that they're insulated from their constituents and uh, accessible to the lobbyists and employees of Amazon, um, you know, is the degree to which that project is going to be advanced. Um, so, I, yeah, you know, I think a part of a good, a great deal of it is like, you know, this multicultural coalition just uh, hits all the right buttons and and checks all the right things for these people and they don't really need to think about the ways in which it is still advancing a project of white supremacy right still advancing an economic system that preys on and and sacrifices and consumes uh, workers who are not white Um, and as long as they don't have to think about it as long as it's out of sight and mind you'll see this machine is when the machine hums along the most uh, smoothly, I think, and most, and it gets the most enthusiastic support, right? It's only, it's, it's like, if you look at when the Obama officials joined Uber and Lyft, right? It's before the crisis period. And then after the crisis period, the crisis period being 2017 and 2018, 2017, Uber was uh, fucking anathema. Uh, and to an extent still is, um, but 2017 particularly was anathema. Um, and you don't see as many transfers over there, but you do see it as soon as they start speaking in the language of uh, performative apologetics. And as soon as they start incorporating the multiculturalism into their thing. And that's when, that's when they really take off. That's when the successes happen. That's when they're able to upend labor law. That's when they're able to do partnerships with the government contractors. That's when they're able to uh, market themselves to cities as a software provider. That's when they're able to really dig their nails deeper into um, privatization efforts across the country. Is there a sense of who were the leading figures behind the scenes of building bridges between these two camps? How did we go? I know, you know, some people would point to the Ford Foundation and the the legacy of it had in destabilizing black radicalism by 
um, cutting off a lot of leaders and redirecting a lot of struggles towards ones of entrepreneurship. But do you have any sense on, on how you get the racists and the the class traders or the race traders in a room with one another and get them to sort of do this grand bargain? Or I, I guess I, I still am struggling to sort of understand how the Koch's and, you know, like the Obama's, for all intents and purposes, probably have family photos together. And I'm wondering if you have a better historical understanding of how this was built out. I, I think generally speaking, um, it ends up having to, I don't know if the work has been done to map out specific nodes of families and their relations, except within their own patronage networks. Like we know very well how people on the right are connected to the Koch brothers. And we know very well how people on the left, you know, I mean, just not the left, but you know, the Democrats, <laughs> uh, liberals are um, connected to the Obamas and the Clintons, right? Uh, the cross-pollination we know well about for specific episodes, specific projects and specific uh, moments, but not so much all the time. Like we know why it is that we know what happens when the third way Democrats are, are created and stewarded under Clinton, um, the first Clinton. We know um, the relationships that he made, overtures he made with the United Kingdom and the ways in which that also catalyzed new labor's turn and the, and the cross-pollination that happened there, right? We know how parts of our own American, uh, American right and American, you know, liberals uh, also had their own cross-pollination and collaboration. But I don't think specifically how it is that like they are so eager to work with each other um, is fleshed out beyond the ideological um, because part of it is, for me, or the uh, something I also struggle with is you know, a lot of these people are ostensibly like well-read and educated, right? Enough that they might be aware of the country's own political history. And so it is confusing why some of them will go about to cultivate connections to the opposition's uh, political networks instead of consolidating their own to take power, even if their ideals are not our own. Like, you know, I would assume that they would try to replicate what the successes of the right to have their own block. And maybe that is because they're different. They have less differences than we might otherwise think. Right. And, or they perceive less differences than we might otherwise think. Um, but, you know, for that metaphor about Cokes and the uh, Clintons, I'm not sure, you know, I think, cause I think, I think maybe one Avenue to look at is the corporation, uh, the corporate influence and the industry influence, because, these industries facilitate uh, spaces for people of all walks of life within the narrow mainstream confines to meet each other, talk with each other, work with each other, and go on to birth more of these affinity networks and groups uh, and connected to funding networks, grow and grow and grow, right? And so maybe investigating the spaces where people land and the ways in which they work together for these things might be one way to look at that. Uh, Stacey Abrams' favorite book is, I think, The Fountainhead. (laughs) 
I really, I, I, I struggle to understand the sort of, when you start to dig into the source material of, of neoliberalism or what I think Rand called individualism, you come up with quite a bit of racism, uh, often sympathy for fascists, and ideologies that seemingly would warn away um, people who have historically struggled and suffered under white supremacy. Yet it, we've seen the exact opposite. We've seen a flourishing uh, in recent years of global neoliberal multiculturalism, uh, all the world's elites mixing together and spreading out an ideology where baked into the cake uh, are very nasty ideologies about fascism, hierarchy, and often uh, racial purity. And I, I don't get it. And it, it would seem like individuals like you've sort of alluded to, uh, particularly for Obama, I think that's still the trauma a lot of people are processing. It's like invasion of the body snatchers. I, I just, I, it, it, it boggles my mind unless those schools have really kick-ass PTA functions. I just, I don't understand how, how they all get into Verbum Day or the Sidwell and Friends and come out uh, advocating for a capitalism that has extremely racist roots. I, I don't get it. There's this really great biography on him, David Garrow's A Rising Star, that is a look of his life from, on, from honestly, from his father's uh, life to his, um, to his early political career, right? Um, and I think it is the best biography because it, you know, deconstructs a lot of the myths and the fiction of Obama's own myth telling, right? And reveals him as a, a deeply, like a unique, probably a uniquely cynical individual, right? Who like had an awareness of the moment that he was in, of the history that had led to it, of the pressure points that would be needed to press and use them specifically to advance his own uh, political career um, because he knew he'd be able to have the, he had the talents and the ability to do so and advances consistently and regularly a theory of politics, which more or less is saying that everything is a game um, and we all are in it to advance America, right? And I think like what you're talking about, you know, it's really confusing how people can work together to advance you know, uh, racial capitalism, especially with people who outright say, like, let's bring back slaves, right? Uh, let's bring back segregation. Um, women shouldn't vote, uh, Peter Thiel's favorite. Yeah, women shouldn't vote, right? Um, that, uh, and also that it, the jury is still out on whether they should work uh, or be in the workplace. I mean, um, for someone to, you know, say in the midst of a country where those views are taken seriously by a good chunk of the population that uh, all we need to do is, you know, put our boots on and work together to fix America, um, I think suggests like a deep, uh, suggests more about their own cynicism and disregard for things than like that of the coalition between the left and the right, the liberals and the conservatives, right? Uh, because it's not so much that the conservatives think everything is a game. They're serious, right? They're serious about, or some like conservatism in of itself is an abhorrent project, but the conservatives in the United States are serious. They're not cynics, they're true believers. Right. And 
maybe then the question is why are the why is the opposition cynical why are the democrats so cynical why are the neoliberals that fill the ranks of the democrats so cynical uh because that to me on some level that seems to be the guiding thing behind so many of them making coalitions but then maybe that's too kind on them and they actually like there is still a good chunk of them i mean there are a good chunk of them who are fine with the racist, you know, roots of capitalism and see it as like a past problem that happened hundreds of years ago and you just got to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. There's plenty of that, but there's also people who like maybe otherwise would be opposed to it, but don't care and don't really think that it's an issue for one reason or another. Do you think for the sort of day-to-day life of coders, programmers, sort of low-level lobbyists, that when they look at a Silicon Valley where you see a lot of uh, people, uh, dating interracially, where you see a lot of gay and trans uh, individuals uh, in prominent roles, where you see the heads of hierarchies uh, from uh, non-white backgrounds, that they sort of confuse uh, individual uh, progressive elements of identity with, and, and that this allows them to ignore the systemic racism of the systems they're creating. We've talked about, uh, and maybe you could uh, bring up a bit more demographics here, how systems like Uber, DoorDash, Postmates, uh, Lyft harm people of color. Uh, But in talking in this dream world that a lot of people associate with California, everyone's multicultural. They all say, hello, everyone is five genders. And, you know, you, you fuck everyone from every different country on the earth. Is, do you have a sense of if that sort of individuated dream world of progressive identity politics helps coders and the people who work at these companies obscure and hide from themselves the systemic racism of the systems they're creating? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, on every level, Silicon Valley benefits in one way or another from a myth or a series of myths that allow it to obscure the roots of its industry Uh, the roots of California's own formation and its role in the national identity and the role California also has and just like how violent and racist this country is. I mean, when we think about California, when we think about Silicon Valley, when we think about the tech industry, uh, there are a lot of things that come to mind that uh, paint it as a progressive place, as a paradise in a desert or whatever, as um, you know, like you just, you know, talked about when in the reality is that California is an artifice, right? An artificially maintained ecosystem as a result of 200 years of uh, unregulated despoiling of the environment. And as a result of a series of enterprises that made a small cadre of aristocrats incredibly wealthy, and set in stones the political, social, and economic institutions that dominate the state to this day, right? And that had a role in uh, pushing United States territorial expansions, pushing the United States, you know, uh, imperial activities overseas, uh, pushing the United States formation or you know, uh, extractive and destructive activities inside of the country as well. Um, but it's been able to benefit from an obscuring of that, just like it's also benefited from the obscuring of like the origins of Silicon Valley being in the military industrial complex, right? And being a part of a system that needed to, you know, in order to preserve the United States uh, uh, global monetary system, 
uh, Silicon Valley played a specific role in recycling trade surpluses uh, to populations that weren't getting adequate social programs uh, in the form of military contracts for building, you know, weapons to kill other people overseas and take their resources to bring it, you know, into the global system or to develop tech uh, to better surveil or and regiment the markets and the labor forces, right? Uh, these are all obscured and we're presented with like uh, the complete opposites where Silicon Valley is a place that's always been at the frontier of the American imagination and a progressive enclave instead of like from the first days talked about as like the next realm, right? We talk about Silicon Valley as like a place of innovation, cutting edge invention, a free market enterprise and not like a government backed, a series of government backed monopolies and secured monopolies uh, that allowed it to destroy every single other competitor and dominate uh, the market and the economy. Um, so these myths have a real effect when they trickle down to everybody who lives there, everybody who thinks about it, everybody interacts with it, everybody who works there. Um, you hear a bit of it when Workers, especially I think at Uber, but also at all the tech companies, because um, I think the Uber example is more prescient because of the uh, the contract laborers there are more visible than the contract laborers at Facebook, uh, who are content moderators, right? Um, but you know, at Uber, right, uh, the employees will talk openly about the myths that they believed in and the. Uh, dissidents uh, they experienced that became unbearable when they were working at the company um, uh, and witnessing the company push for more and more and more uh, tools, uh, programs, devices, practices that had little regard or thought about how the drivers would earn more money and were have more to do with the preserving Uber's status quo or its uh, pitch of profitability to investors. I think that this is a real problem across the valley. I think, you know, Wendy Liu in her book about Silicon Valley talks well about how there's like, you know, genuinely among people who work in these places, a belief that what they're doing is work that helps the world and is going to fix the world and can improve it. And that the companies are, you know, stumble from time to time, but that's because they're imperfect and they're huge and this is new and this has never been done before, right? And it's only after repeated failures that people begin to realize that's not exactly the case. The question becomes, how do we get people to not simply doubt the myth, but get pulled into the reality of the situation, recognizing that these are places that have been at the forefront of hurting millions of people in this country and abroad, right? It is California that drove the United States to invade the Philippines you know, and murder countless civilians in the name of getting, literally getting trees to bring back so that California could replant its exhausted forests, right? Uh, it is Silicon Valley that has incited genocides across the world, that has created child mines in the Congo, right? That has uh, created in uh, industrial arrangements where, um, entire, where, where, where countries have open air toxic uh, sludge poisoning the land for God knows how many generations or factories where people are killing themselves in, right? These are all realities of the world that are going on all the time and that are, have happened and are continuing to happen. And I feel like if you pull someone out of the myth and, and confront them with that, you know, with help from 
also the experiences uh, or help measured out by the, you know, coming also face to face with the present right now experiences of the people that they're hurting. It is hard to um, parrot the uh, nonsense that we're all fed and expected to, but it's hard because these are the, also the same firms that dominate everything. You know, they dominate uh, the imagination, they dominate the literal airwaves, they dominate like our daily lives and our convenience and our transportation and our communication. Like it's hard to escape that, but I think it's possible with help and with like constant engagement of people's experiences, their lives and, you know, history of uh, the place that you work in or live in. Um, segregated bathrooms don't help. <laughs> so your report on, was that you or a fellow vice colleague? That was, yeah, that was, I mean, Lauren did a few um, did a few pieces on that over time because they've never really fixed the issue. And I don't, I don't think they it's not in their interest to. So it will always, I think, be an issue. That's a great indictment of some of the concepts we're talking about today of uh, how these companies use multiculturalism to hide uh, or build a Trojan horse around what are extremely racist vehicles in terms of the suffering, uh, hierarchization, and pain that they cause so many black and brown uh, and poor people in the United States. Could you just as a brief aside, explain what I mean when I'm talking about that? Oh, yeah. So at, uh, at most, um, you know, so Uber... I think, or to back up, Uber drivers, uh, they're contractors, and so the company maintains that they are not responsible for ensuring they have access to bathrooms consistently. A lot of Uber and Lyft drivers spend their time in two places um, consistently, airports, um, where there's a significant amount of business in waiting for a trip that will take you into a city so that you don't have deadhead, which is where you drive empty. You, you take that trip into the city and then you can just drive around in the city, minimize your costs. Um, you can also, and they also at the, the green light hub centers, right? These are the centers where you're supposed to go if you need help, if you need to register, if you need to handle some issue. Uh, in both of these places, I, well, in the green light hubs, the bathrooms are usually segregated for employees and uh, drivers, right? Uh, with a lot of people having the perception that, uh, the drivers are dirty. The drivers don't care about the bathrooms. The drivers don't maintain them. When the reality is, you know, these drivers um, are using the bathrooms, but the same amount of resources often, if you go to the center and ask, are not being dedicated to cleaning those restrooms, right? They don't care. Um, and also those bathrooms are much more high volume than the employee bathrooms. And also there's the fact that, you know, uh, most drivers are not white. Uh, and so they more or less get coded as dirty or uh, less concerned with hygiene um, by uh, others, uh, specifically by other employees. And at airport bathrooms, um, there's no, there's little to no maintenance. The company offloads it onto the uh, airports and fights legal battles to ensure that they don't actually have to pay for um, any sort of responsibility or they'll fight legal battles uh, simply to say that it's not theirs and that the, you know, the, the airport has to pay for it. Um, at the same time, also charging small fees to drivers uh, saying that, um, oh, you know, we're using the money that we're charging you while you're at the airport to help improve the experience or some bullshit. Um, 
this is uh i think like deeply indicative of like a really cynical disgusting racist mindset where you know the company would be nothing without the drivers right the company it's not enough for the company to deny these drivers classification to deny them a fair wage to deny them benefits it's it's also this job is a job where you need to be constantly moving if you're making ends meet you cannot piss if you need to you get your you cannot use the bathroom and relieve yourself that is such a basic thing to be robbed of um and not allowed to do it a lot of drivers are end up being forced to use uh cops right yeah, to relieve themselves inside of their own cars or in alleyways um this is it's 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 such a basic thing it's really hard to wrap head around my and my head around sometimes and i've seen it report and i've reported on it and it's just hard to understand why such a basic dignity is robbed from from uh, workers and then blamed on them right they're blamed for not being able to schedule enough time uh to use the bathroom they're blamed for um you know relying on the job and being in a position where they can't take afford to take a few minutes to use the bathroom because they'll miss a trip or they'll lose their spot in the queue it's it's uh infuriating i think it encapsulates just like the pure disdain and disregard for the driver's lives that is also something you see these engineers talk about which is that there's not really a lot of attempts to think okay how's this going to affect the driver okay how does the driver actually live the concern if there ever is some is about numbers liability um and of course pr right and this means that if some update uh is meant to improve uber's bottom line by firing drivers so what if there's a transitional period where 10,000 of them are sleeping in their cars who gives a fuck because the number at the end is going to be 10,000 smaller right everything else is just incidental